Matthew chapter five, let's go back into this. I wanna do what we have done for the past month now. I wanna read all of the Beatitudes, verses two through 12. Uh, we will pray and then we will we'll look at, we'll examine the last two. Um, Jesus has his disciples up on the top of the mountain and in verse two, he says to them, and he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of false evil against you, falsely on, your, on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, oh man, God, thankful for a chance again to, to dive into your text. Um, God, as we have looked through these beatitudes, just uh, I'm reminded of, of my inability. Um, God, I'm reminded of our, our weaknesses, of our real poorness in spirit. And God, we come to you this morning um, with that remembrance, and we're, we're sad. We're mourning the way that we are. Uh, we mourn that our hearts are, are inclined to be bent inwards, to focus on us, to think of ourselves and not to think of others. Uh, God, we're, we're mourning um, our, our sinful nature and that our proclivity is to run, uh, run to sin and not run to you. God, this morning we ask, I ask that you would, uh, under the control of Jesus and through the power of your spirit, that you would take your word now and you would apply it to our hearts. God, that you would change us and that you would, you would shape us and make us to look more like you. God, at the end of this day, may we hunger and thirst for righteousness. May we be a people who are full of mercy because we have received mercy. May we walk in a pure heart and God, may we be peacemakers. Father, work in us today. Do something today that is so magnificent that it proclaims the power and glory of God. God, do this for our good because we want to see it. We want to taste you. We want to know you. We want to become like you. God, you desire that for us. God, do that for our good, but do it for your glory so that people will see and know the beauty of Jesus. Lord, I ask all of this in your son's name. Amen. There is a new show on Apple TV that my wife and I started watching this week called Masters of the Air. Anybody seen it yet? No? Okay, this is not an endorsement of that show. We're like two episodes in, and I will probably get the characters' names wrong. Masters of the Air is a story, uh, a show about World War II, uh, bombardier pilots. And the two main pilots of the story are these guys named Buck and Bucky. Great names, right? Buck and Bucky. Uh, so, so, so these two pilots, I don't remember where they're from. Bucky, uh, they're, they're, the, they're the main, main characters and they're, they're flying, they're these bombardier pilots getting ready to go over to Europe for World War II. Um, I think it's Bucky gets called to go overseas first. And so they take their, their B-17 bombers. I don't remember which plane it is, I'm sorry. Uh, they get in their, their planes and they fly over to Greenland. Bucky and his crew does. And then they stop in Greenland uh, and then they'll go back on over, uh, they'll fly over the pond over into Europe. So, so Bucky goes first 
I think it's Bucky. And Bucky is, um, he's the life of the party, man. And, and he's kind of the, uh, the riot life of the party, right? So, so everybody likes him, very charismatic guy, lots of fun, causes trouble everywhere he goes. Uh, but, but a good pilot, uh, everybody loves him, super charismatic guy. So, so Bucky goes on over, he lands in Greenland, they stop at a, at a bar, at a pub, I don't know what it is, I don't know if it's owned by the, by the Marines or whoever, but they stop and, and Bucky gets wild and, and he breaks a, a narwhal tusk that is owned by the bar owner. So what Bucky does, gets over in Europe and he sends a package back to Buck, his buddy, says, hey, Buck, I need you to give this to the bartender because I messed up. So Buck gets in his airplane, fly, he's, he's up next, he flies over to Greenland, he gets to the bar, everybody's in there having a good time. And Buck uh, walks up to the bartender and says, hey, do you know who Bucky is? And the bartender goes, you mean the guy who broke that over there on the wall? And I mean, it's a, it's a big narwhal tusk and you could tell the bartender was not happy. So Buck says, Yep, that's Bucky. And so he says, well, he gave me this to give to you. And he slides this package across the table uh, in an effort to try and make peace. And so the bartender opens it up and it's a little figurine, really poor made figurine of a unicorn. And, and so you, <laughs> the bartender is clearly not happy that in place of his, his narwhal tusk, he gets a baby unicorn. And you, you can see the look on Buck's face. He's like, I'm gonna kill him. I'm just gonna kill him. And you know, Bucky's somewhere over in Europe just dying, laughing, having a good time. Church, sometimes I think our peacemaking attempts are a little bit like trying to replace a narwhal tusk with a unicorn figurine. It doesn't really fit the situation. As we have walked through these Beatitudes, um, every one of them in some form or fashion, uh, I thought God has brought clarity to me and brought me under a spirit of conviction in some way. But the two that we're gonna look at today seem to have a little bit of a unique weight to them. Um, we're gonna look at peacemaking and persecution, two things that ironically, you know, those don't seem to go together, right? That's what we're going to look at. And we're going to be reminded one last time, our main point is that a truly blessed life is found in submission to and dependence on the king. Uh, today, as we, as we look at these last two things, that's my hope. My hope is that as we package this all together, that it, we see a truly blessed life is found in submission to and dependence on the king. So starting with peacemakers first, Matthew chapter five, verse nine, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Now, as we've looked at these beatitudes, it has become clear to me that the first four seem to do with a person's heart. Right? Talk about being poor in spirit, mourning, meek, and hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Talk about a person's heart. But then the last four tend to look almost like an outward action. And while they are an outward action, the root of them does come from your heart. So it is both a heart position, but it's a heart position that leads to external action. Now, when you consider this beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers, not just within this context of the beatitudes, but within the context of history, it becomes even more interesting because what are the Jews looking for? What are they expecting? What is Matthew's original audience looking for? Man, they're waiting on a Messiah who is going to come in and is going to overthrow the Roman rule. Who's going to destroy this, right? They're expecting a kingdom. They want a kingdom of peace for sure. But before peace has to come the sword, it has to be thrown off of them. But in walks Jesus. And what does Jesus say? The kingdom is here and it's full of peacemakers. It's not coming with a sword, at least not yet. But have you ever stopped to think about what would happen if Jesus came to inaugurate his kingdom with a sword before he came with peace? What would happen? Who, who would be in that kingdom? 
Nobody. Nobody would be in that kingdom. We wouldn't be in it. The hostility between God and man would have continued to exist because the sin that man had done between God hadn't been dealt with, hadn't been paid for. So in order for peace to reign, for God to have a kingdom of peace, he had to deal with sin first. Jesus had to come as a peacemaker before he could come as a conqueror. So then, how does Jesus come as a peacemaker? How is he the prototype of peacemaking? How is he the perfect peacemaker? I think we could argue that basically he just modeled the Beatitudes. He lived out these eight things that he's calling his followers to be, right? If anyone was rich in spirit, it was Jesus. He, he lived with God. He lacked nothing. I mean, Jesus was, was perfect, perfect harmony, perfect unity. Yet what did he become? He became like us. He took on flesh. He became a man. He walked into a broken world full of, not peace, full of conflict, full of strife, full of disharmony, disunity. And he mourned the state of humanity. And then he was meek, right? Jesus surrendered his will to God. What did he pray in the garden of Gethsemane? Not my will, God, but yours be done. And by dying on the cross, submitting to God, what did Jesus do? Ephesians 2.14 tells us, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. You see, by being crushed on the cross, this enmity, this wall of hostility that existed between God and us because of our sin, Jesus crushed it. He broke it down. The sin that man had caused a man had paid for. But it wasn't just any man, it was the perfect man. And because it was a perfect man, and it was a man, God's wrath was completely satisfied. The hostility between God and man was removed. So through his death, what happens? Colossians 1.20, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of, the earth, blood of his cross. You see, what Jesus did on the cross was brought peace. He reconciled all things. He brought peace to all disharmony and disunity. And without the peace of God, the peace on earth is lacking. That had to be dealt with first. Friday was a beautiful day. Had the kids at the house, just me and the kiddos. Walker and Sawyer were in the backyard playing baseball for, I don't know, a couple hours. Reminded me of a time when I was a kid. I was with my grandma, and we were up at Glorietta, and uh, we were at a cabin, and I was throwing the baseball against the wall. And uh, my curve curved just a little bit too much, right through that window, right? So for a sake of illustration, let's just pretend that yesterday or Friday, my boys are out playing baseball, and Walker throws a pitch to Sawyer, and uh, Sawyer takes a swing, and Sawyer misses, and the ball goes through the window. Now, what's about to happen, right? Brother, how could you throw that? Like, that was a horrible throw. How could you? What do you mean it's not throw? That's perfect. You missed. It's your fault. Come on. It's, there's this, all of a sudden, we have conflict. We have strife. We have a problem between the two. And after 20 minutes of arguing, this didn't happen in this illustration. After 20 minutes of arguing, they, they finally decide, okay, it was an accident. Your pitch wasn't bad. You accidentally missed it when you swung. It was an accident. I'm sorry. Is there peace? Mm-mm. He says, mm-mm, no. There's peace between the two brothers, but there's still a problem, right? There's a daddy who's in the house, got a broken window he's got to deal with. So, so peace on earth can happen, but it's not fully peace. It's not fully complete until it's been made peace with the father. 
Do you see that? Horizontal peace may feel like it's there, but deep down, true peace doesn't exist. Church, we can have horizontal peace with each other, but until that peace with God has been established, peace is never complete. So when we look at becoming peacemakers, the first question that you ever have to ask is do you have peace with God? Have you come to the one who has broken down that wall of hostility between you and him and said, I tried to come to God, but I couldn't do it. I wasn't, I wasn't good enough in and of myself, but thanks be to God that Jesus made a way through the cross, through the shedding of his blood. Have you, uh, we just sang that song, there is a fountain filled with blood. Have you plunged yourself underneath the blood of Jesus and said, God, your, your, your sacrifice is the one that will cover me. If you haven't done that first, then horizontal peace, while it may seem to be exist, while it may seem to exist, it isn't complete. And here's the thing, when you come to God, having recognized your poorness in spirit, you mourn your sin, you submit to, to the strength of Christ, uh, and you live under the control of the spirit, and you hunger and thirst for righteousness, God gives you this heart that is full of peace. But the peace of God isn't just something that you receive. Just like when we receive mercy, we give mercy. When we receive the peace of God, do you know what we become? We become peacemakers. Receiving the peace of God is actually a call. It's a call to be like the one who gave you peace. When you have met the Prince of Peace, you can't help but want to be like him. Now, I don't think that you need any convincing from me that we live in a world that you live a life which we need peace, right? What is, what year is this, 2024? What is this year? It's an election year. We're about to walk into a whole season where every commercial is aimed at anti-peace, how my party is better than the other party, right? Like it, it is intentionally anti-peaceful. Or maybe like me, you can just look inside yourself and the relationships you have maybe in your family or in this room or in your businesses, and you can go, man, there's conflict. Basically, anywhere a person exists, peace is needed. The call of God to his followers is to be peacemakers. Have you ever thought that maybe, just maybe, the conflict that you're in the middle of, the strife that you're walking through, God has placed you there as an opportunity to be a peacemaker, for him to carry on the mission that he began through you. Have you ever thought about that? I love what John Broadus said about this beatitude. He said, there is no more godlike work to be done in this world than peacemaking. So if peacemaking is our call and it reflects the God who has saved us, then how we go about doing this work of being a peacemaker really matters. And we have briefly looked at the perfect peacemaker, right? We, we could just run to Jesus and go, how do we be peacemakers? Be like him. I, I, I think that is a, a purely, uh, that's a good way to do it. It's a, an accurate way to do it. So because I've, I've studied, uh, one of the passages that has popped up to me has been James chapter three, I think. I'll get to it in a second. Uh, and, and I want to take James three to help see this. Uh, but before we walk into James three, I think there's three different categories in which we see people uh, or, or we experience peace being need to be made. All right, so, so the first level of peace that we must have is what? It's peace between us and God, right? We talked about that. That's our first level of peace. Second level of peace is peace between you and me. 
We, you might have a problem with me, we need to make peace with one another. The other way we see peace is peace between you. There's problems between one another. And so, so maybe my job is to step in and be a peacemaker in the middle of that situation, okay? So, so those are kind of three different categories. The lines blur, they don't, they don't you know, nothing is clear in, in this life, but, but they're, they're, they blur. Those three different categories, I think, are different ways in which we need to see, or which we're called to be, peacemakers. And I, I wanna try and give us some, some tools to help us step into that. Uh, but before we step into that, there's, there's some presuppositions we have to, to acknowledge before we deal with being peacemakers. The first thing is this. When it comes to dealing with conflict, where does conflict spring from? It springs from your heart. We talked about last week, blessed are the pure in heart. And we looked at Matthew chapter 15. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the overflow of the heart uh, comes uh, adultery and anger and anxiety and all these issues. So, So conflict exists because of what reason? Because of sin in our heart. It must be dealt with. So when we walk up to be a peacemaker, the first thing, the first thing that has to be dealt with is our heart. It has to be dealt with here internally. And if we've dealt with our heart, uh, this is why Jesus says, it, when, when, to deal with our heart, in order to do this, Jesus says in Matthew 7, 5, that we need to look at the log in our own eye before we can address the speck in our brother's eye. Because when we look inward and see what our own heart looks like, what happens to us? When you see you got problems in here, what do you do? I become poor in spirit. I mourn my sin. I let the strength of Christ control me. I hunger and thirst for righteousness, right? You, you, you start to go back through the Beatitudes. And once our heart is addressed, then what do we do? Well, now all of a sudden we look to the other person's heart. So here's, here's the deal. I've got a little bit of conflict with Fabian over here. I just, I can't get it in Fabian's head that Texas A&M is just not a good school, right? And I know it's not your fault, Fabian. It's, you're raised that way, so we can't help that. No, the conflict that we're talking about here is, isn't just a disagreement on what college is best. It's not, a, it's not a disagreement on maybe even a theological issue that we can say, hey, let's just, let's just debate over this, but we can still be unified, right? It's not something, I'm talking about deep internal conflict that is a problem, a rift in a relationship. And in a rift in a relationship, even if it is Texas A&M, where is the problem? It's in the person's heart. So, so if you and I have conflict, the conflict that we have is, is ultimately rooted deep inside of you. And how am I, as a peacemaker, supposed to help fix that problem? Just like the rest of the Beatitudes, we can't, right? We've walked through all of these and we see that at the end of the day, this is a work that only God can do. It's a work that God does in you and it's a work that God does through you. Now, what does this mean? This means, though, that if we're called to be this type of person, if we're called to be a peacemaker, and it's a work that God does, and I step up to you living out the Beatitudes in order to bring peace to a situation, and all of a sudden peace happens, what just happened? God worked and I got a front row seat to it. I got to experience it. You get to be the hands and feet of God. You get to be an instrument of his grace. And if you really love God and you love his glory, then peacemaking should be something that we proactively seek to do. It should be something that we chase after because we love God and we love getting to see him work and we love getting to see the light bulb click on for people where they all of a sudden go, man, I get who he is. 
So peacemaking then is a call, but man, if, it's, if, if Jesus is Lord over you, it's a desire because man, I want to see and know and love and be like God. So we start with the presupposition that my heart is the problem and that God can only do the work. Well, if that's the case, then what do we do? <laughs> well, we move forward wisely. Okay, James chapter three. If you got your Bibles, flip over to James three. Keep your finger in Matthew five if you want to. I think we've got them up on the screen. Kind of small print, so sorry about that. James chapter three, verses 13 through 17. And I think what happens here in this passage is that, is that God through James merges wisdom and the Beatitudes. It kind of brings these two things together. So James chapter three, verse 17. I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of walk and unpack th- this as we walk through it. Who is wise and understanding among you? Man, you walk into conflict. What is the first thing you need? I need wisdom. And I don't need my own wisdom. I need the wisdom of God. Like I, I need supernatural God wisdom to help me deal with this. Who is wise and understanding among you? Who is it? Man, it's God. God is the one who is all wise. James chapter one says, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God who gives generously. So, so go to God and ask for wisdom because that's what he does. He gives wisdom because he is wisdom. So God help us, help us to be wise, help us to live this out. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. There we go, there's that beatitude meekness, right? In the meekness of wisdom, what does that mean? God's gonna give me wisdom. I'm gonna live under the the strength of God's wisdom and I'm gonna do it under the control of of the Holy Spirit. God, I'm I'm not gonna do this by my own way, I'm gonna let you do it. I'm gonna be meek, I'm gonna let you be the one in charge. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, can you imagine walking into conflict with jealousy and selfish ambition? Man, you will not move forward in any way. In order for there to re- conflict to be resolved, it can't be about my own uh, agenda. It can't be by my own, I know better than you do. No sense of self-righteousness can be there. No bitter jealousy, no selfish ambition. Do not boast and be false to the truth. Selfish pride and boasting. Man, if I walk into this, you and I got an issue and I walk in, I'm going, hey, let me tell you about all your problems. How's this conversation gonna go? It's done on arri- dead on arrival, right? We're not moving forward at all. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. How, what, what is wisdom that is full of jealousy and selfish ambition and boasting and false truth? What, what is that? It's earthly. It's unspiritual, it's demonic. For where, selfish, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Man, it's not, it's not false to the truth, forgot that one. False to the truth means that, man, we're not afraid to pursue truth and face the hard reality of things that must be dealt with. Look, if, if that describes your disposition and in walking into a sense, uh, a, um, a conflict situation, man, where's the hope? There is none. But instead, the wisdom from above is what? It's pure. Conflict comes from an impure heart. Peace and peacemaking comes from a pure heart. So out of that state, we pursue peace. Then it's peaceable. That's ironic, peaceable peacemaker. Right? Christ didn't come with a sword to bring peace. He came with peace to bring peace. It's gentle. And it's not oppressive. 
It's gentle. It's open to reason. It is willing to look at things. They're not narrow-minded. It's looking to, willing to look at things from all different sides of a situation. It's full of mercy. I mean, the only way I can, receive, can, can resolve conflict is when I've understood that, man, I have received the mercy of God. And I was broken and I was unable to fix it. And so God, I need you to fix it. And because you've given me that mercy, man, I'm just, I'm full of it. I'm gonna let it flow out and go out to you. It's full of mercy. Remember, mercy means you're quick to forgive and show compassion to meet practical needs. And then they're full of good fruit. Good fruits, what are the good fruits? I mean, I think of the fruit of the spirit. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. That describes the peacemaker. He's, he's impartial and sincere. What does impartial mean? Doesn't take sides. Looks at things objectively. And then they're sincerely, they're serious about pursuing peace. I'm gonna chase after this. They look at things objectively. They pursue peace between God and man and between man and man, man and man, recognizing that it's a work that he must do, but it's one that he uses his followers to do. Church, what, what is James 3, what is Matthew 5 ultimately a picture of? It's a picture of Jesus. He, he, was, he was this, and he was this for you. The question is, is, is this a picture of you? Does this describe you? If you claim for Christ to be Lord of your life, if you claim for Christ to be in you, then what should naturally flow out of you? Peacemaking. Are you a peacemaker? Does this describe you? The promise for those who are peacemakers is to be called sons of God. Like the other promises, peacemaking does not make one a child of God, but peacemaking is an essential expression of divine sonship. It's not evidence of, it's evidence of, not a qualification for. What this means, what this, what, what this all means then is if you live this out, people see you as a son of the father. Now, we could spend 10 minutes on four different points of what it means to be a son of the father. That's 40 more minutes. We're not gonna do that, okay? We're, I'm not gonna take that long. So we still gotta get into <laughs> persecuted for righteousness sake. So I just, I'm just gonna put up four different things about what it means to be a son, okay? As sons, if you are a son of God, this is what you have. You have an identity. You have a family. You have a new last name. As a son, you have a relationship to the father. We talked about it this morning. You have a relationship with the father. If you are a son of God, you live life under the true peacemaker. Only Jesus broke down that wall of hostility. Nothing you did, but it's something Jesus did. And finally, as we have seen in all of the Beatitudes, you have what? You have an inheritance. You have something to look forward to that is greater than anything that you can begin to comprehend. Now, while all of these things are true and deserve their own time, what happens when we seek to be peacemakers? What happens? I can think of kind of three things again. One, God uses us to be a peacemaker. And we actually get to experience, uh, I, think what, I think it's James who calls it a harvest of righteousness. Two, nothing. We seek to bring peace to a situation and it's just like the Israelites walking up to the Red Sea. Seems to be no hope. There's no way forward. There's no way backward. 
Or three, Matthew chapter five, verse 10 happens. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What could happen when we seek to be peacemakers is we might find persecution. Now, it's interesting about verse 10, and this may be the one that has bothered me the most all week, is that as true as peacemaking is of the follower of Jesus, it seems like in the Beatitudes, Jesus is saying so is persecution. Jesus promised to his followers that since he was hated, those who follow him will be hated even more. Get you kind of excited about being a Jesus follower, doesn't it? Can't wait for that. Peacemaking gives us this great hope and a purpose to pursue. And then all of a sudden we walk into this idea of persecution. We're going, hang on a minute. When I think of church, what I'm thinking about is I, I want to go have a group of friends. You know, maybe we can go watch the Super Bowl next week, go Chiefs. Uh, may, maybe we just come and we'll pray together and, and we can sing songs and we can walk through life. My, fa- my least favorite phrase, we can do life together, right? We can, it'll all be good. Just sing, sit around the, the campfire and sing Kumbaya. Now, hopefully there's a lot of truth in those things, right? Hopefully that is true of of the church community. But church, it's impossible for the true follower of Jesus to live in a broken world and not experience persecution. I mean, look at Jesus for a minute. Think about Jesus. Think about his character. Like, we talked about being gentle and meek and kind and good. I mean, he was that perfectly. Like, as good as gentle could be, that was Jesus as good as, as kind could be, Jesus nailed it perfect. You can't be more kind than he was. He got it all. What happened to him? How was he treated? We sing this song, man of sorrows, lamb of God, by his own betrayed. Man, one of his own followers traded him for 30, 30 pieces of silver. What Peter say that night? Nope, I don't know him. The sin of man and wrath of God has been on Jesus laid. Silent as he stood accused, beaten, mocked, and scorned. Bowing to the Father's will, he took a crown of thorns. Those closest to him betrayed him. Those who said they loved him denied him. He took on God's wrath. He bore our sin and our punishment. He wore a crown of thorns. If that's what happened to the most perfect man that ever lived on the face of the earth, what happens to the people who are not perfect yet call him Lord? What Jesus is doing in this final beatitude isn't just warning his followers of what's to come. I think he's setting the expectation that persecution will be as common in the life of the believer as the rest of the Beatitudes will be. But this isn't just persecution for the sake of persecution. It's persecution for what? For righteousness sake. Read a commentary this week that said this, the godly character of Jesus' followers and the righteous conduct that the Sermon on the Mount describes serves as a silent indictment on the sinful lifestyles of others. Here's the thing, church. When you live out the Beatitudes, when you do what God has called you to do, it will naturally be an affront to people. It will offend them. It's not that you're living with some sort of condemning life or I'm holier than you or any of that. We we know that's not true of us. It's just the things you love aren't the things the world loves. And they aren't persecuting you because you go to church are persecuting you because you claim to be a Christian or read your Bible or you pray. That's not what you're being persecuted for. They're persecuting you because they hate God. They hate the God that you love. So they will mock you just like Jesus was mocked on the cross. They may physically harm you 
like the millions of martyrs that have died as they witnessed about Christ. And they'll falsely accuse you of things that you never said or did. Now, we live in a world that is evangelically house-trained. We like to talk about, man, persecution's coming, persecution's gonna happen, and we kind of tend to nod our heads and go, yep, it's gonna happen someday. We're not surprised that Jesus would warn his followers of persecution, but what is surprising is how Jesus calls his followers to respond to persecution. What does he say to do? Verse 12, rejoice and be glad. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure that being mocked and scorned and beaten and betrayed, my knee jerk isn't gonna be rejoice and be glad. But Jesus commands us to do this for a few really important reasons. He does it because persecution can serve as an affirmation of our obedience to Christ. The prophets, uh, verse 12 for the, so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The prophets who heard and spoke God's word were persecuted. Jesus, who was God and lived perfectly, he was persecuted. So, so persecution can serve as an affirmation of our obedience to Christ and our being his sons and daughters. Second, we can rejoice and be glad since we're submitting and obeying our father. What, is, what does he say will happen? Great is your reward in heaven. Now, I've briefly mentioned that an inheritance awaits us in heaven. We talked about that earlier about being sons. Uh, but I think 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18 is super helpful for us to see what our reward is. I quoted this a couple weeks ago, but 2 Corinthians 4, 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, that persecution, light and momentary, what's it doing? It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Our reward is an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. You can't comprehend it. So when persecution hits, you can look to that promise and have hope and you can press forward and you can rejoice and you can be glad. The third reason that I think we can rejoice and be glad actually comes from the verses just prior to uh, 16 through 18 of 2 Corinthians chapter four. Paul says this, he says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Church, in persecution, what is being made manifest in us? The life of Jesus. People actually get to see through these broken jars of clay something more beautiful, something more sweet, something more precious than anything this world has to offer. Isn't that what you want? If Jesus is Lord, don't, don't you want people to look at you and see a manifestation of Jesus? If this is true, if affirmation, eternal glory, and the manifestation of Jesus through us comes from persecution, how would we respond to it? And we'd embrace it. We would be thankful for it. We would rejoice and be glad. 
we'd be ready for it. Not, not that we would go chase it and try and find it, right? Come persecute me a little bit. That way I can just have some of this, right? No, we're not, we're not looking for it. Instead, we have a heart position that says just what Jesus said in the garden. Not my will, but yours be done. Now, church, the thing that has bothered me about Matthew chapter five, verse nine is this. What if we're not persecuted? We live in Dalhart, Texas, America, right? This is the buckle of the Bible belt. You can throw a rock and hit a church. Everybody in our town probably knows somebody that knows somebody that goes to church. So, so we, we tend to live in a world that we go, eh, persecution just doesn't happen here. But when I hear stories of what goes on in the halls of our schools, and hear about what happens at bars and restaurants in this community and what happens at people's businesses or what's going on inside of people's homes, it is very clear to me, church, that we live in a post-Christian culture. Our conservative relativism may appear to be a good thing. As long as we're just good conservative people, it's all right. But what I am afraid of is that it has made us comfortable with just being good moral people. And I think we need to hear the words of Jesus in Luke chapter six. In the book of Luke, Jesus, the Beatitudes are spelled out a little bit differently, but he follows them with a woe. And Luke 6, 26 says this, woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. Church universal popularity was as much the lot of false prophets as persecution was of the true. So the question for us today is, have you been persecuted for righteousness sake? If not, why not? Is it because we really aren't living out the Beatitudes? Is it because we really haven't recognized our state or mourned our sin? Maybe we're not allowing the strength of Christ to control us under the rule of the spirit. Maybe we really don't hunger and thirst for righteousness sake. Maybe we aren't extending mercy out of a pure heart. Maybe we're not being peacemakers. Maybe we're just content to preserve the status quo rather than move towards what God has called us to or intends for us. Church, for the one that has truly submitted to and depended on the king, persecution is inevitable. Have you been persecuted? The Beatitudes call all of you. When I say all of you, I mean all of you in the room. But the Beatitudes call all of you. All of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. To follow Jesus isn't just something we add on the weekends. If that has been your view of Christianity, then I'm afraid you haven't truly followed Jesus. We are getting ready to approach and observe the Lord's Supper. This is a moment where we take this cracker and we take this little cup and we're reminded, we remind ourselves and we proclaim to one another and we proclaim to God and we proclaim back to ourselves when we do this, that man, that body was crushed for me and I live under that blood because that's the only thing that broke down that wall of hostility. If you have not truly submitted to and depended on the king, then this is not for you. And that's okay. 
As a matter of fact, as these are passed around, if, if, this, if Christ is not Lord over your life, if you are not walking in submission to and dependence on him, then just let this pass. Just hand it on to the next person. There's, there's no shame in that moment. As a matter of fact, it actually honors God for you to just let it go. It dishonors God for you to take that as a lie. But if Christ is Lord of your life, if you say, yeah, Jesus is mine and I am his, are you living out Matthew chapter five, verses three through 12? You poor in spirit? Do you mourn your sin? Are you meek? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Are you merciful and pure in heart? Are you a peacemaker? Have you experienced persecution? Church, I believe the call for us today is to repent and believe. It's to stop and proclaim the death of Christ for us so that we might have life and have peace. So I'm gonna go ahead and I'm gonna ask the deacons to come on up. We're gonna distribute the elements. As these are passed around, you're gonna have a minute to do some business with the Lord, to confront these issues. And as you deal with this, would you let the Lord and the Spirit of God search your heart? We'll let the music play and then after this is distributed, we'll take the Lord's Supper together.